You're listening to Radio Free Wholesale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Parker, and I'm joined today by the man who currently represents Michigan's 58th district and the state house representatives in Lansing. That's portions from both Hillsdale and Branch counties. And he'll be on the ballot in a few weeks. It's Representative Andrew Fink. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Josh. So the election is close at hand, and we'll talk about that, especially some of the ballot propositions that voters will see. And I'm sure many have been seeing advertisements and admonitions regarding at least some of them. Governor Whitmer's on the ballot. Her latest vetoes are reigniting conversation about her use of executive emergency powers. But we're going to start today with what's currently going on uh, in Lansing and sort of uh, some deja vu, uh, talking about the State Unemployment Insurance Agency. It's in hot water again. Um, and when we started these interviews, when I started doing them last fall in August, we were talking about the State Unemployment Insurance Agency, and they just can't seem to get it right. They're back in the news now once again. Um, what they what they did this time, they're reaching a settlement agreement. Uh, the attorney general and some plaintiffs who were citizens uh, whose unemployment claims were wrongly marked as fraudulent by the UIA's computer system. Uh, in this case, the computer system's at fault, but it led to these plaintiffs losing thousands of dollars as the government automatically started seizing pay- paychecks, tax refunds, and other assets uh, after they didn't pay a 400% fine, which, of course, they were not fraudulent, so they had no reason to pay the fine. So what should have never happened, uh, since there was no criminal conviction before the seizure took place, took seven years to resolve. All this happened in 2015. Uh, but the state fought the suit, arguing the plaintiffs didn't sue fast enough, so the state shouldn't be held accountable for their error. Uh, the state Supreme Court ruled against them in 2019, uh, and that was a very long legal fight. Now, hopefully, we're getting to the end of it. These people are receiving $20 million in compensation, and it's an old story, uh, but certainly nothing new under the sun over at UIA. So it's stories like this and the incorrect approval and overpayment in tens of thousands of Michiganders over the last two years that has led to this significant decline in confidence uh, in the state unemployment insurance agency. So as far as this conversation, Representative Fink, there's a decline in confidence. What can be done and what should be done to restore the public confidence in our state government or state agencies uh, that they actually can administer these things? Yeah, it's an interest. It's a good. It's a good question because it, I mean, this is a this is an example of how the bureaucracy, if it is not being managed well across two administrations, you know, the same organization here, the Unemployment Insurance Agency, which is largely made up of non-political appointees, had errors. I mean, both of them actually. There's a lot. There's the 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 software component of the 2020 2021 issues is non-trivial, uh, but uh, this other one being being essentially. Uh, well, initially, completely a software failure that I think then turned into a failure in judgment by the people in charge of the uh, the unemployment insurance agency. It's just a good reminder that it's not only one party or the other that is capable of sort of mismanaging or failing to manage uh, the bureaucracy that doesn't really change uh, in between. And so you really have to look for good leadership at the top of the departments because there's so much that happens that it's kind of out of the public eye. Nobody thinks of the Unemployment Insurance Administration unless you're a payer of the unemployment insurance tax. Nobody's thinking of it on a day-to-day basis or, you know, or a recipient. But, uh, but it's, it's in the background of every employer-employee relationship, so it's a big deal. If there's a question of you know, how, how to characterize what, what kind of unites these things, it really is a lack of accountability on the part of the administers, administrators of this program. You've got the, in the 2015 case, my recollection of it, is that after the the agency knew they had a problem, they actually still denied it for some period of time. Maybe it was just that they didn't they didn't want to kind of make it right with the the folks who they had. Mm-hmm. But even that is 
it's just kind of a disrespect to the citizens who, again, didn't really even have an option whether to engage in this program or not, and were then kind of mistreated by it. And in 2020, 2021, you had a different set of problems, but at the end of the day, uh, it really came back to the fact that there, there kind of wasn't a steady hand at the till of either of these, in either of these uh, instances. So I do think that it's, it's an area where the program is kind of the way it is, but it, that doesn't mean it's just automatic and you have to have you know, high quality folks on top of it, ultimately that will come back to the governor in each case. It makes me think people always talk about artificial intelligence is going to take over the world, you know, and the computers will rule us all. But I mean, in these cases, it's the computers that are actually making the errors. Yeah. Or, or I mean, right, because you always have an operator. So a computer is a, is a tool. And, and if you describe it in the abstract, it's no different from any other kind of tool. It can be good at the thing it's good at, and it's probably not good at the things it's, you know, it's probably useless for a lot of other things, right? Or given a computer program or whatever. And so in 2020, uh, the administration essentially decided not to employ the software that would sort of the fraud check. And that cost the state probably billions of dollars. It was a judgment about getting money out the door at a time when everybody was, you know, shutting down their businesses, both in response to and even before the governor's emergency orders had come down in March of 2020. But that judgment turned out to have a maybe a steeper downside risk than the, I mean, I hope it's a steeper downside risk than they realized because it was billions of dollars again. Yeah, I mean, these are, it's, so again, it's like this is really important program that's supposed to be kind of in the background. And, you know, it's kind of a part of the social safety net in the background. And if it's ever going to work, it has to work through, you know, diligent and, and proper management because it's an enormous amount of money, an enormous amount of risk for the employers and employees. It does affect the overall health of the economy, whether that system's functioning right or not. Yeah, well, and I, looking at the Auditor General's report back from uh, 2015, actually, he, he says that the whole problem is that UIA hadn't required employees to review fraud determinations before they were issued. <laughs> so all, yeah. that's, that's all it is. It comes down to that kind of administration. And, and um, really, I think everybody who works with some kind of a computer element, uh, everybody has to resist this. They're pretty good now, but like MapQuest and whatever back in the day, right? People would rely on it. And the next thing you know, it's taking you 10 times longer because the roads closed or something like that. You know, computers don't, uh, they don't, they don't do what people do, which is, you know, take in new, uh, new kinds of information. And, you know, computer is only as creative as the person who designed it at the time was, right? So it's going to make some mistakes, but it's not going to be perfectly calibrated to everything that happens in life. And so people still have to do their jobs. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Andrew Fink with us. We're talking about the administrative state and that ties into one of the next things to talk about, and that's Governor Whitmer's use of emergency powers. She certainly used the administrative state to accomplish some of that. Um, her usage of emergency powers has been probably the defining debate of the past two and a half years in Michigan state politics. And, you know, this election will in part be a referendum from people on, on whether or not they're comfortable with some of that use of power. Well, either way, who, whoever wins, uh, Dixon or Whitmer, the governor is going to still retain much of that emergency power, in part through her public health department, despite the legislature's best efforts to take it away. House bills 6184 and 6194 passed both houses in September last month. Spoke briefly about it previously. The governor has since uh, vetoed them after the state Supreme Court found the governor's emergency orders that had relied on a 1945 law unconstitutional. She immediately found refuge in a different law, called it a public health ordinance, had HHS issue it, and it 
it worked out for her okay, these bills would have made those ordinances under that public health power subject to legislative approval after 28 days. So again, like many of these reforms, you have a legit emergency. She's got a month to go issue orders as needed. And, you know, the legislature has time for deliberation, which, you know, properly belongs there in our constitutional structure, thinking, you know, the Federalist Papers. Yeah. You, know, you need prudence for the executive and the unexpected and deliberation for the legislature and the routine. Uh, well, the governor vetoed it. And I know you're not very surprised. I don't think anyone is. What do you see the impact of this next month? And, and do you think enough people are frustrated by some of this? I think that the that question of whether enough people are frustrated by it, I guess I would say my observation is that this is a, an element in her governorship that the, the governor seems to sort of hope people have moved past. I say that for a couple of reasons. One is um, she's downplayed it in recent uh, conversations. Right. Whether that reflects on, relates only to the election or something else, I, I don't know her, I, don't, I can't say. But, but I do think that uh, the fact that she's sort of tried to avoid discussing the depths into which the administration, you know, the governor and subsequently the, the Department of Public Health at the governor's direction reached into the personal and private and professional lives of, of the people is... Uh, she wants to avoid it. That tells me she probably knows that if people think about it, they do They do think that she overreached significantly. As for the, the bills that she's just recently vetoed, yeah, they are uh, similar to Senate Bill 1 of this, of this current term that we're in, the 101st legislature, which would have limited emergency powers written by the Department of Public Health, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, to 28 days. I've, of course, heard plenty of people say that 28 days is too many. Either there should be no emergency power or it should be a shorter time period. If you think there should be none uh, uh, at all, that's obviously a position that that, uh, a person could take. But you would still have things like the Emergency Management Act, which is a 28-day time period. And going to zero, it's not obviously as consistent with the concepts like you just you laid out from the Federalist Papers, the experience of, say, uh, President Lincoln in the Civil War. There are times when or or the reason that we had the 1945 law in the first place or the 1976 law, 1976 law. I think people were mostly thinking of like natural disasters, things like that. Uh, 1945 was often referred to as the Riot Act. You know, if you have a major riot, the legislature is not going to convene quick enough to to deal with it. And whether, you know, 28 days is an appropriate length of time versus seven or something like that, that's a question of prudence that I'd be happy to to actually probably take the shorter side of. I do think that the legislature could assemble in seven days. It's difficult to imagine like a non-World War level event where that couldn't be done. But we had the option to vote for a 28-day limitation or not vote for it. And so I was happy to support this package. Uh, I had a couple of bills in the package, although mine are not the, the, the ones related to the public health code. Um, and so when the governor vetoed it, no, it's not a surprise. I do think that is consistent with her general approach, which is that the the primary purpose of the state government is to make decisions on behalf of the citizenry. So when she said that she was following data and science, but never identified her sources of data uh, in anything other than the most vague terms, never identified what scientific or, or statistical uh, triggers there might be, you know, this much of, say, a, a, whatever, positive test rate, uh, or this many raw cases, or this many cases in this kind of population in an area so concentrated in population, or this many people over the age of 65. We never got any of that. You'd hear about all of these metrics. You know, you could, obviously, you can collect up all these numbers. There was never a story 
coming from the governor about what each thing would mean. And then you saw things happen like she took advantage, I think, of the Biden administration's decision to roll back all federal uh, or most, not all, but most federal kind of rules and restrictions about COVID in June of 2021. She took that opportunity to actually accelerate her plan to drop all state emergency orders, which she did do. Right. But that didn't actually ever comport with any particular set of data either. And then when we went into higher case levels and things in the fall of 2021, the orders didn't come back. I'm happy about that. However she got there, it was the right thing to do to not reinstitute this intense emergency, you know, administrative control of the economy and other aspects of life, schools especially, I mean, closing schools and whatever. It was, it was the right thing for her to do to not do that. But the fact that she never explained the difference in anything other than absolutely evasive terms just it speaks to the problem in the first place of one person making all of these decisions on behalf of all of the people and never explaining herself. So you don't have to take the position that absolutely no emergency powers ever uh, for any reason or any circumstance are appropriate in order to say we really have some some problems in the statutes that we have now, powers that are unlimited in terms of time and scope. It's not consistent with the American scheme of government. And so it should be easy for all people to see that and say, we've got a problem that is organizational. It's not actually about individual order and individual policy. We just can't have one person wielding this much power at a time. And we ought to change that. Our governor has said she will not give up any of her power. I think that's that's very nearly a direct quote. That is not, in my mind, uh, the way you expect a person in a system of limited government, checks and balances, separation of powers to view her role. Uh, and that's, I think, the reason that she keeps vetoing these things. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. If you're interested in hearing more from Governor Whitmer or Tudor Dixon, uh, Radio Free Hillsdale will be uh, rebroadcasting their debate 8 p.m. Wednesday, October 26th, and 3 to 4 p.m. on Saturday, October 29th. I want to turn now to the ballot propositions that the voters will have a chance to vote on in November I'm going to read the proposition as it appears to the voter, and then I just want to get your comment as far as uh, pros and cons that voters should be aware of in your analysis here. The proposal one is a proposal to amend the state constitution to require annual public financial disclosure reports by legislators and other state officers and change state legislator term limits to 12 total years in the legislature. What's your thoughts on that? I think that this one is different from the other two in that there's not as strong of, a, of an ideological component to it. It's more a question of using the experience that the people of Michigan have had in the last two and a half decades or so of, of the term limits era. And I think just trying to answer the question, was this what, what people were going for when our constitution was changed to go from no term limits to the strictest in the nation, as they're often referred to now, six years in the House, eight years in the Senate, potential total of 14 uh, which is it's pretty frequent that people wind up serving all 14 uh, years or at least uh, go from the House to the Senate. I have some reservations about this, despite the fact that I am not actually I, I do not support term limits other than those imposed by the voters themselves. I mean, I often say is the voters do fire politicians all the time. Right now, 538 or Real Clear Politics or whatever source you want to go to is going to tell you that Republicans are going to have like 50 more seats or something, maybe more than 50 additional seats in Congress in the beginning of 2023 than they have right now. That means 50 politicians are going to get fired without any congressional term limits. That's more than a tenth of the chamber. I think that's a pretty good indication that the voters know how to get rid of politicians that they're no longer that they think are no longer serving their interests. 
It even happens in primary elections. Um, the first political experience I had was on our uh, Congressman Tim Wahlberg's campaign when we were primarying the time Congressman Joe Schwartz, who was a very liberal Republican. That was successful. Congressman Wahlberg won that primary and was elected to Congress for the first time. So I've seen it done. It, it certainly can work. I mean, there's been a successful primary uh, probably just about every term of the Michigan legislature for the last several. I, I know of one in 2018. I know of a couple actually this uh, this year. So that's kind of the, the basic objection I have to term limits, period. The question here is, is this the right frame? I, in, my, in my mind, the question is, is this the right way to address whether the term limits that were adopted by the people have sort of fit the purpose to which they were intended? I think what you wind up with with, with term limits as short as we have them now are legislators who have been in, to- in town less than the bureaucrats that we just spent a fair amount of time talking about, and those people are not responsible to the voters in the way that the legislature is. And they've also been there less time than the lobbyists, which when most of the institutional knowledge in a capital is fundamentally a uh, is fundamentally possessed by people who are not responsible to the people or, or even incentivized to work on behalf of the people, that might create a problem. So it, it's not a question of do you support term limits or not. We will have term limits after this either way. Do you think that term limits of, of, a, of a total of six plus eight is, is best, you know, six in the House, eight in the, in the Senate is best, or 12 total, I don't care which chamber you serve them in is best. That's a question that, that I think reasonable people can disagree about, and we don't really know because we haven't experienced the one, we've experienced the other. And the other issue that I kind of have with the way that this one has come along is the financial disclosure piece. That's something I've already supported myself, and the House has voted for, I think, a couple of times in the last several terms. We certainly did this time, uh, an element of financial disclosure. And the point I'm getting at there is it's not necessary to put that in the Constitution in order to do it. Whereas changing the term limits, that has to be, is already in our constitution, that must be a constitutional amendment. I think that the inclusion of the financial disclosure piece suggests to me that the proponents are a little less than 100% confident that they can sell the term limits change on its own terms. So they're bringing in the, the ethics piece, which is something I do support. I don't even exactly oppose the change in the term limits. Again, I'm not a huge, I'm not a supporter of term limits on their face. I just think that that conversation should be had on its own terms primarily rather than in, con- in conjunction with something that is not actually connected to it. All right, proposal two, a proposal to amend the state constitution to add provisions regarding elections. It's a little vague, so I'll read some of the bullet points. Provide the voter right to verify identity with photo ID or signed statement. Provide voter right to single application to vote absentee in all elections. Require nine days of early in-person voting. Provide that only election officials may conduct post-election audits. And require state-funded absentee ballot drop boxes and postage for absentee applications and ballots, among other things. Well, one thing that you didn't include in the list there, Josh, which uh, and it's a lengthy list, so I'm not faulting you for not including it, but there's a, one additional piece which has to do with um, private funding of election processes. I think it might be the last bullet point if you look at these bullet point summaries. That's, I think, one of the most concerning issues in this ballot proposal, because the suggestion there is that a governmental entity can, and I guess the proponents of this must think that they should, receive private funds from whatever source from whatever whatever source that they can get them from in order to administer election operations, which could include kind of the generic, you know, be a good citizen and vote kind of advertising or, or whatever. Even if it can't directly include that, it could, you know, supplant the need for it by funding other pieces of election administration. And I have two problems with that particular policy. One is that there's no consistency in who gets the outside funding. So what, what have been frequently referred to as Zuckerbucks 
you know, but a charity supported by Mark Zuckerberg gave money to a variety, a, a, a pretty large number of municipal, maybe county governments around the country in 2020 uh, for the purpose of sort of get out the vote efforts, not explicitly partisan, but sort of boosting the ability to, to kind of get communications out about the election period by the local governments. I mean, that sounds, I think, to a person relatively mundane. What's the big deal? Well, if you choose which places to give that money to for the purpose of driving turnout only in those places for the purpose of affecting the overall outcome of the election, and you've done it through the government itself, I think that raises questions that really can't be answered uh, by by the proponents in a, in a persuasive way. Yeah, well, and, and to give an example of that, I mean, in Pennsylvania, which was probably the most talked about state with that, Zuckerberg gave money to the city of Pittsburgh and the city of Philadelphia, two very staunchly democratic areas. And then, of course, Pennsylvania did go to the Democrats. So that's, that's an example of that, certainly in action. And by a margin where the efforts uh, could have been influential, because I think the overall margin in Pennsylvania in 2020 and the presidential race was only like 40,000 votes, which is a pretty small number in a state of like, you know, 14 million people or whatever Pennsylvania has. So that's one objection. The second is, what's the government for? What's the most fundamental purpose of the government? What things do you think that the government should be doing, even if it can't do, you know, the next marginal task that it might otherwise do? One way in which I've kind of I've talked about this, and I don't remember whether you and I've talked about it, but there was a bill or a couple of bills in the in the legislature this past year to allow cities in Michigan to institute special assessment districts for their police and fire. The special assessment district would be the entire city. But in my view, if a city has a has a police department, that should be the first dollar that the, that the city spends. Marginal dollars shouldn't be for police and fire. Marginal dollars can be at the margin of what the of the central purpose of the government. Here, I would say something like a park is a good example. I completely support city parks. Hillsdale is a great example. Coldwater is a, good, a great example. They're beautiful city parks in these places. They're, uh, I think, a perfectly appropriate use of cities, government, cities tax dollars. I have no objection to them, unless it means you can't afford to pay your police. All right. So the point I'm getting at is. Something like the administration of an election should be a kind of a dollar one priority or something like that. I would equate this to uh, if you're going into an election and one side of it has been boosted at the governmental level by a, an outside group that has a political agenda. Well, if you were litigant in a lawsuit, would you be comfortable thinking that the judge had some kind of similar ex experience where the courtroom had been paid for by the litigant on the other side? I think most people would say this gives me reason to think that I don't have an arbiter who's been neutralized from influence by the other side of my case. And that's the, I think that's the concern that a person can rightly raise when a private party is funding the election administration. But that additional piece of, of this uh, proposal is, I think, the one that raises the most fundamental questions about what, what's really going on, who's, who, what should the government be focused on, and are the proponents of this legislation, of uh, this constitutional change, are they focused on that or are they focused on something else? You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We have Representative Andrew Fink, and we're running up on the clock, but we want to talk about Proposal 3 very quickly. That's, of course, the abortion proposal, a proposal to amend the state constitution to establish new individual right to reproductive freedom, including the right to make all decisions about pregnancy and abortion, allow state to regulate abortion in some cases, and forbid prosecution of individuals exercising established right. Uh, I've been consistently pro-life, not just in my political career, which is 
a relatively small portion of my life, but my entire life, taking Michigan from the most pro-life state, according to our statute today, which people refer to as the 1931 law. I think it's more appropriately referred to as the 1846 law because the text is either completely unchanged or almost completely unchanged since 1846, uh, which recognizes the right to life of an unborn child. And so making such a radical change, I mean, in, in a sense, this style of lawmaking of going from you know zero to 100, or from, in this case, sort of yes to no, without any kind of gradation, might raise concerns in any area, but in something as fundamental as the right to life, my problems with this go beyond those kind of formal and technical objections that I have to sort of the yo-yo here, but to the heart of the matter, uh, where Michigan has been a state that has recognized and protected the sanctity of life, let's say since 1846, according to this, to this text. The thing that I would point out here is that that's consistent with what was happening here in Michigan in 1846. This college was founded in 1844. That law was written in 1846. The Republican Party was founded in 1854. And that all happened, you know, near where we are today uh, by many of the same people. Those same people were heavily involved in, you know, writing the Republican platform in 1856 writing the 14th Amendment in 1868, even if it wasn't the exact same people, the same kind of conversation that was largely happening, honestly, in the Great Lakes region, what used to be the Northwest Ordinance. Those people had a consistent view of what American life and citizenship were supposed to be like. And that's a heritage that I want to cling to rather than reject whole, you know, wholeheartedly, honestly, going beyond Roe versus Wade. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Representative Fink, and you've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thanks, Josh.